If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer, a community-powered podcast. In this pertinent time, independent media shining a light on alternate perspectives and issues, and often pushing back against the skewed dominant narratives, is more important than ever. So if you're learning from us and inspired by our conversations, it would help us out so much to have your direct support through a donation of any amount at greendreamer.com support. As you may have noticed, we don't do ads on the show anymore, and I really hope we can keep it this way so our incentives remain aligned with just sharing honest and critical conversations with our listeners. All donations go towards sustaining the work of our four-person team, supporting the speaker honorariums for our guests, as well as compensating our ecosystem of artists who create the unique cover for each episode and themselves are helping to shift culture through their artwork. If you want to help keep our show alive, join us as a co-creator today at greendreamer.com slash support. This kind of systematic way of cutting trees, the Israelis understand that this is not only disconnecting the people from their ancestral land. You know, many of these trees are thousands of years old. The oldest olive tree in the world is in Palestine. It is understood to be 5,000 years. And many of these trees are from before the Roman times even. So when you cut these trees down, you're not only disconnecting the Palestinians from their past, from what their ancestors had planted for them, but you are actually cutting their income. Today, we're speaking with Rami Barhoush, the vice chairman of the board of the Arab Group for the Protection of Nature, also known as APN, which is an independent nonprofit organization seeking to enhance the capacity of Arab peoples including those living under occupation and armed conflicts, particularly in Jordan and Palestine, to protect, sustain, and establish sovereignty over their natural resources and food, while strengthening the advocacy efforts of civil society organizations on regional and global environmental issues. My connection to Palestine is that both my parents and all of my grandparents were born in Palestine. I was born outside of Palestine because of the occupation. My parents had to leave. I've lived in Jordan for the past decade, at least. This is about me. As for APN, APN was founded about 20 years ago to help farmers in the Arab region 
return their positions, their roles, actually, their roles as the provider of fresh and healthy food to their communities. We focus on supporting local food systems, and we promote the idea of food sovereignty in this region. I know these are big goals. We have only been able to launch projects in Jordan and Palestine. So what we do is we partner with villages and with local farming organizations and help them plant fruit trees, improve their water harvesting, rehabilitate their lands, and so on. We believe that farmers are facing mounting challenges due to climate change and globalization and penetration by the multinational corporations. And this leads them to leave their farms and to seek employment in the cities. And this affects the the availability of fresh and natural local foods, leads to reliance on imported food that is supplied by the multinational agribusiness corporations, weakens self-reliance. It also increases dependability of smaller countries and further empowers the industrial countries. Mm. It adds to their hold and to the prioritization of their interests at the expense of other populations. So we try, we try to mitigate that. Yeah, I definitely would love to dive deeper into your work with APN in a little bit. But to first provide a backdrop for our conversation, I know we could dedicate hours and days just talking about the history, but I would love for you to share the critical points of contention from history that essentially explains the primary struggles that Palestinians are facing today, and specifically how we might distinguish the identities related to religion, indigeneity, and nation-state within this context. The founding of the State of Israel in 1948 came at the expense of the Palestinian people, who had lost over 500 villages, tens of thousands of casualties, hundreds of thousands of refugees that were forced out of Palestine. And this has perpetuated until this very day. So for the Palestinians, 1948 is called the Nakba, which is a catastrophe. And this date is not when it all started. It all started before that. It started with the Zionist project. The Zionist project was seeking to establish a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. And this was in complete disregard to the Palestinians who constituted over 95 or 94% of the population of Palestine, who had their cities and who had their towns and villages, schools, offices. Palestinians had factories and had farms and imported and exported. Palestinians in 1927 exported over one and a half million boxes of oranges, Jaffa oranges, to Europe and exported olive oil to many other regions. So the Palestinians had had a complete nationhood and this was abruptly damaged by the Zionist project during the First World War. The British government gave a promise to the Zionist organization that Palestine, which was clearly becoming under the domination of Britain as it was winning the war against the Ottomans. So the Minister of Foreign Affairs in Britain, James Balfour, gave gave a promise to the Zionist organizations to establish Palestine as a national home for the Jewish people. So this was a promise by someone who doesn't own to someone who doesn't deserve. And from then on, the British government got a mandate over Palestine and began implementing this promise. So Jewish Europeans and Americans were being, especially Europeans, were being transferred to Palestine en masse in big ships and were giving weapons, were given places to stay, all at the expense of the Palestinian people. And from then on, the Palestinians tried to resist. They didn't have the power. They didn't have the organization of the British Empire. They didn't have the ability to stop the influx of all of these settler colonialists. 
and by 1948, the state of Israel was founded. Immediately, that state started establishing itself as a Jewish state, so it established a law, it was called the Aliyah law, it was a 1951 basic law which said that any Jew anywhere in the world that wants to immigrate to Israel can do so and will get citizenship at arrival in the airport, whereas the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians whose ancestry had been in Palestine for millennia were not able to return to their homes and to their offices and to their lands and farms in Palestine. And because they were not able to get back to Palestine, thus comes the next law, which was the absentee property law. So Israel issued a law or came out with a law that said that any absentee property should go back to the state. So the property of all the Palestinians who were not able to go back were confiscated and given to the Jewish settlers who came from Europe and stayed and took over the houses and the villages and the cities. And those who stood against them and who resisted were, of course, terrorized, either killed or tortured or kicked out. And this explains the the big, big refugee problem that the Palestinians have been facing ever since. This explains the 500 and so villages that were destroyed and annihilated during this period. From then on, the Palestinians have been facing the challenge of being second. Those who stayed in 1948 in their homes became second-class citizens of the state of Israel. In 1967, which is about 19 years after establishing the state, Israel took over the rest of Palestine, which we call the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem. These areas are considered by international law as occupied Palestinian territories. They were taken over in 1967, and until today, these areas are under military rule. The West Bank is under military occupation. The Gaza Strip is even worse. It's not only under military occupation, but it's under a complete siege where Israel controls everything that goes in and out, prevents movement in and out of people and goods, except as it pleases. And of course, people in Gaza are going through what Palestinians in the West Bank are going through also, where with the confiscation of land in a systematic way, the robbing of water sources, the restriction of movement of goods and people, uh, the building of the separation wall, which is a huge and scary 700-kilometer long, very high concrete wall that separates Palestinian areas, the hundreds of checkpoints that restrict movement and so on. So Palestinian farmers have been facing all of these problems trying to reach their lands, trying to cultivate their lands, because the Palestinians really have no other viable option but agriculture, as tourism is, is of course, is out of reach because of the obvious reasons of in- inability to move in Palestine in and out and to, ex- to expect people to come in and stuff. Trade is also controlled. Exports and imports are also controlled heavily. Even basic workshops and transformative processes that Palestinians can work with are also facing the challenge of allowing material, raw material, allowing equipment, and so on. So for Palestinians, agriculture seems to be the only option. And this is why we see the vicious and atrocious and systematic attack against Palestinian farmers. So since the year 2000, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Agriculture, Israeli settlers and uh, Israeli army has uprooted over 2 million trees in Palestine and Palestinian areas, And this is where APN comes in. It is a small organization that tries to do what it can. But what we try to do is to try to plant trees in place of those that were uprooted by the occupiers. 
Of course, uh, the Palestinians are the losers because when a tree is uprooted, that tree is, most of these trees are old, they're big, they give a lot of fruit, and the ones that they replant in their place are seedlings that will take many, many years to, to give enough fruit and, and, and to give the same feedback or to give the same sustenance that the trees that were uprooted gave. Just to clarify, because I hear this come up a lot, going back to the historical piece, prior to the establishment of the Israeli state in 1948, Palestine and the Palestinian people consist of people of all or diverse ethnicities and religions. So the quote-unquote conflict is not a conflict between, for example, Jewish people and people of other religions. Palestine as it had been known for thousands of years. Palestine is known to be the area that's south of Mount Lebanon, north of Sinai, west of the Jordan River. So this area has always been known as Palestine. This is even before the Greeks, going all the way to the British mandate that called it the mandate area of Palestine. So this area has always had Palestinians living there. Palestinians were Muslims, Jews, Christians, and Druze, and others. The Palestinians lived together, regardless of religion, lived together in the same areas. We didn't have in Palestine what they had in Europe as the ghettos and the separation of areas. So the Muslims, the Jews, and the Christians lived together with no barriers at all. In the 1800s, Europe was becoming more nationalistic. Nation states were being formed, and the Europeans were trying to establish their identity in a new way. And there was some failure in accepting or in integrating the European Jews within a different European communities. So the European Jews found that maybe they need their own national movement at the time. Theodore Herzl came up with something called the Basel Conference, called the, the European Jews into a conference in Basel in 1897 and inaugurated the idea of Zionism, which was, which was already there, but it, it became something that is a project now with, with the establishment of organizations and so on. And they decided in the conference that they needed, this was actually redefining the Jews from being part of a religion or a faith into an ethnic group. And to do so, they needed a homeland. And the options were Argentina, someplace in Africa, uh, I think Guinea or something like that, and Palestine. And for, for that conference, Palestine became the most desirable one for many reasons. First of all, because it is there in the Bible and also, it was very obvious that the British were going to control these areas with the weakness of the Ottoman Empire, and there was a bigger chance of getting some kind of promise from the British. So Palestine was designated as the new home for the Jewish people. Then the, the Balfour Declaration came in 1917, promising Palestine as a national home for the Jews, who constituted, the Palestinian Jews at the time, constituted about 4% of the population. And the declaration said something about, but still we have to respect, the non-Jewish communities in Palestine. This whole term, this, is, you know, this should clarify the colonial attitude of the British and of the Zionist organizations or, or, or the Zionists at the time. It was a colonial project. It was a settler colonial project to take over a country regardless of who lived in it and what it was and just settled that country with, with the power of the empire. Mm. From that point on, the problems began. Now, the Second World War expedited everything as you know, Hitler came to power, started oppressing the Jews, persecuting them. And so the Palestine was the 
the best, this was the best place for them to go as the Zionist project was going ahead and going forward. So they started going to Palestine in bigger groups. During these years, the United States did not give them the opportunity to go to the United States. Many European countries uh, restricted their entry. So they went to Palestine. And when they went to Palestine, they didn't just want to live with the Palestinians, but they wanted to establish a state with a Jewish majority, which was only going to be achieved by getting rid of the existing majority of the indigenous people of Palestine. And from that moment on, the Palestinians have been trying to resist what had started in 1917 and what has not stopped until today. Yeah, I appreciate the clarification. And in terms of Palestinian struggles and resistance, a lot of people hear this term that they're dealing with Israeli occupation. And this can sound abstract. So how is this actually being still materialized today to further the goals of the political project that is the nation state? And I wonder if you could share some of the more recent examples of how Palestinian self-determination and even access to their own lands and means of survival are continually being threatened and disempowered. If you are part of a project that wants to displace a whole population from their land, from their ancestral land, and replace them with new settlers from Europe, America, and the rest of the world, you have to do everything possible to make their lives unbearable. So there's a continual confiscation of land. There are new settlements and settlement expansions on a systematic base. In the West Bank, of course, in, in the area that was that became Israel in 1948, Israelis have no issues. I mean, they are there, they control everything. And in this area, the Palestinians constitute about 20%, 21 or 22% of the population. They have Israeli citizenship, but they don't have a national identity because in Israel, as a Jewish state, if you are a Jew, you have the nationality of a Jew. If you are a non-Jew, you're a second-class citizen as a result of so many laws and so many regulations that make you a second-class citizen in effect. But these people have passports and they have health insurance. They can go to schools, not the same schools as the Jews, but they can go to the Arabic schools in the small Arabic towns that clearly are second-class in terms of budgeting, in terms of opportunities and everything else. Now, the, the other area is the area that was occupied in 1967, which is East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip. These areas, the state of Israel continuously confiscates land, continuously builds new settlements. We have over 600,000 Jewish settlers in the West Bank today, living in over 200 settlements. There's always land being confiscated for new settlements, for, for existing settlement expansions. And to service these settlements, you have to build these Jewish-only roads, these highways that are off limits to the Palestinians, you have closed military areas to protect the settlements and to control movement. You have the construction of the separation wall that annexed more than 10% of the West Bank area, including some of the best farming lands there. And farmers have been prevented. This is a funny thing because the, I mean, it's a funny thing in a sad way because that wall was declared to go at the, at the borders of the West Bank, which is called the Green Line. Now, it didn't do that. It went inside the West Bank in so many areas, annexing over 10% of the, of the West Bank just by stretching that wall. And that wall had, so many, had gates, and these gates are controlled by the Israeli army. And whoever had farms, like these, this wall would go through a village, separating the houses from the lands, from the farms in most areas. And when these farmers want to cross the wall and go to their lands, they can only do so in certain areas when the wall opens a couple of hours in the morning, a couple of hours in the afternoon, and then closes overnight. 
if somebody gets stuck on the other side of the wall, they are unable to go back. And to even cross the wall, you need permits. And to get these permits, most of the time they are denied. And when they are granted, they are only granted for the owners of the land. So if I have a piece of land and I want to go cultivate my olives, I can't do that on my own. I need people to go help me. I need my family. I need workers. I need other farmers to go along. And since I am the only owner of that piece of land, I get the permit and I go to my land. There's nothing for me to do. I can't go cultivate the land on my own. I can't plow it. I can't fix it. I can't do water harvesting and so on. So this is one of the things, you know, the, the wall. There is also the robbing of water sources and reservoirs. The Israeli settlers control over 90%, uh, 92% of the West Bank water. And there's their, their sewage, their untreated sewage from the settlements are, are thrown into Palestinian valleys and Palestinian farming lands. And there has been many, many studies by the United Nations and by international organizations about this. And you can read about all of these cases where it's causing diseases and problems for the Palestinian villagers. There are, of course, the dependency on the agricultural imports from Israel. Since the Palestinians are unable to cultivate their lands properly, they end up having to buy whatever there is, you know, whatever is left from the Israeli markets. The Israelis dump their extra or excess production on Palestinians who have to buy it. When Palestinians are able to produce anything, the Israelis go and dump their production at lower costs so that they would compete with the Palestinians. So these are the things that the Palestinians are going through on a daily basis. And, you know, what's going on in Gaza is even much worse. In Gaza, the Palestinians are completely, completely cut off from so many things. Electricity is controlled by Israel. The movement of food, the movement of building equipment, building material, clothing, everything is controlled by Israel. And every couple of years, the United Nations comes out with a report and says in a couple of years that life for Gazans will be unbearable and will, Gazans cannot sustain themselves in a human way. And, you know, the Gazans are still surviving, but they are surviving at a very, you know, at a deteriorating human level. Yeah. So after all of the pressures on the Palestinians in 1993, after pressuring the Palestine Liberation Organization, Israel and the United States were able to sit with the Palestinians and sign an agreement, an interim agreement that was to last for five years with the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO. And this is called the Oslo Accord. And the Oslo Accord said that Palestinians can start taking over the land, not to end the occupation, but that the Palestinians can start controlling some of the, some of the land on the West Bank. And they, the Israelis divided the Palestinian lands in the West Bank to areas A, B, and C. A being the center of the, of the cities, B, the center of the villages, and C, the farming areas. And if you look at the Palestinian culture, you see that most Palestinian villages, you see the houses clustered together and around them are the farming lands. So the Palestinians have always done this for thousands of years because, you know, they protect each other in, in, in times of bad weather, in times of raids and so on. And, and the farming lands would be around them. And all of this farming land was considered Area C. So Area A was under the policing and administrative control of the Palestinians. Area B was joint control between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And Area C, which is the farmlands, were under complete control of the Israelis. And this was only to be for five years, and then the Israelis were supposed to give that land to the Palestinians. Israel decided that Area C was going to become Israeli land, and they started denying permits for buildings, denying permits for you know natural growth of these villages was going to be to these lands. 
And since 1993, the natural growth of towns has been denied. So the Israelis refuse to build roads, refuse to uh, connect electricity grids, refuse to stretch water pipes to these areas. And the Palestinians are unable to expand into these areas. They are unable to get to them. Under so many pretexts, the Israelis have been taking these lands in a systematic, methodical way. And the Palestinians are stuck in areas A and B, which combined constitute about 40% of the West Bank. Now, the West Bank, along with the Gaza Strip and East Jerusalem, all together constitute 22% of the state of the area of mandated Palestine. Now, when you, when you take 60% out of that 22%, you're left with about 8% of the area of mandate Palestine, which is left for the Palestinians. And the rest is completely being taken and confiscated, expropriated by Israelis through the Israeli army and through the Israeli settlers who continuously abuse Palestinians, threaten them, terrorize them, especially during seasons of cultivation like today. I mean, if you look into this, um, go, go to Google or go to any search engine and just look at what Israeli settlers are doing to Palestinians cultivating the olive during the olive season. You will see all kinds of uprooting and raising of trees, of beating up the farmers, terrorizing them, and so on. And the Palestinians, are. Uh, this is what they're going through. Yeah. So it sounds like beyond the more direct and brute forms of violence that come from, say, militarized bombings and shootings, a lot of this violence is institutionalized and systemic and just making life so difficult for people that it's barely survivable. From my understanding, there really is a parallel in the power dynamics at play between, for example, the European colonizers of what is now known as the United States or Canada, leading to the ongoing struggles for native peoples, as well as the Israeli political power establishing itself as a nation state amongst the lands of the region and the people of all religions and ethnicities there. Although I have come across people who are very much aligned with supporting native sovereignty on Turtle Island or in Australia or Canada or elsewhere, but don't recognize that similar power dynamic in the Palestinian struggle and try to instead portray it as an equalized conflict. And I don't want to equate the histories because I know they're very different still, but might you have any thoughts on why this clear disparity in power and control and wealth seems to be so much more controversial and even taboo for a lot of people when we're talking about Palestine and Israel. Settler colonialism is the same. I mean, the idea is the same. The basic tenets of that is the same. So what the indigenous people in today's United States and Canada and other countries, what they went through is, is very similar to what the Palestinians went through. And during the power of the European control over the world, the Europeans found a place and they would consider it theirs. I mean, in any country, any area that they wanted was considered terra nullius, which is empty land, if it didn't have a white power in it, if it didn't have any whites in it. So all other people were considered non-people. And if the European colonizers found any land, they went and settled in it. And the idea of settler colonialism extended from then to the same mentality that helped create the Zionist movement. And the Zionist movement were completely oblivious to the fact or intentionally oblivious to the fact that Palestine was inhabited by the Palestinians. So the idea is the same. Of course, there are always small differences here and there. Now, many people will tell you, or some people will tell you, it's not the same because settler colonialism usually bases itself on a country 
on an empire, on a on a power that sends its army into other areas. And we, you know, the Israel didn't do that, but Israel did exactly that without the patronage of the of the British Empire, without the Balfour Declaration, without the mandate over Palestine, Israel could not have been established at all. And without the support of the United Nations, the unconditional support of the United States since the 1960s, until this day, Israel will find it very hard to sustain itself with all the atrocities it's been committing against the Palestinians. So the idea is the same. And we are facing a settler colonial regime that wants to displace us, to weaken us, to just subjugate us, to either accept the facts that we are second-class citizens, to accept the fact that we are the weak people and, and that a new nation is being formed at our expense. So I don't see, I, you know, I, I don't think there are many differences. And uh, that's what I think. So a critical part of your work has been to support storytelling that tells the truth about Palestine. How do you encourage people sharpen our critical lenses when learning and hearing about Palestinian struggles? Because we often hear this saying, you know, there are two sides to the story. And if you're being biased and you're supporting one side, then you're not credible. And yet, again, equalizing the dynamic might dismiss the injustice and oppressive relationship at play. So what has your work looked like in support of truth-telling? And what do you recommend people do to calibrate our analyses of what's going on so we can arrive as close to the reality as possible? Well, I, I really like the title of a book by Howardson. The title of the book was, You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train. So basically, if you see a big muscular man beating up a little child, if you just stand aside and say, I am neutral, I'm not going to interfere, you're not neutral. What you're doing is you are promoting the, the oppression of that powerful man on that child. To become neutral, you have to protect the child and make them equal, or at least give the child a chance to defend himself with equal power. So people will tell you it is a problem between two powers. It is not. It is military occupation. It is a violent and oppressive military, military occupation, and military occupations are by default violent. And what we say to people is that look at the cases that are being accepted in the West as just cases, like the civil rights movement in, you know, you know, in the United States. The civil rights movement is accepted by, by most people now, by the mainstream, as a justified movement. And when you look at somebody like Angela Davis, who is one of the ethical and moral spokespersons for the civil rights movement and for black liberation, and she equates Jim Crow laws to what is going on in Palestine. I mean, she was on a, with a group that visited Palestine along with many women with, you know, in, from indigenous backgrounds and different other backgrounds. And she equated Jim Crow laws in the United States to what is going on in the, the Palestinians. She looked and saw the, the streets where the Palestinians are not allowed to walk or drive their cars. And she saw the Israeli settlers walking with their machine guns on their backs. And she saw the areas where the checkpoints are everywhere, where the Palestinians are not allowed to do so many things, and the Israelis were just roaming freely. And then you look at South Africa. This is another case that has been accepted by the mainstream as a justified movement against apartheid. And then you see somebody like Mandela Mandela, who is the grandson of Nelson Mandela, who visited Palestine a couple of years ago. He is a member of the ANC in South Africa. He's a member of the South African parliament. And he said, what I saw here in Palestine is 100 times worse than what went on in, in South Africa's apartheid. When you see these cases and these people equating their issues to the Palestinian issues, 
then you can tell that Palestine is a moral and human issue. When you see some Jewish groups like the Jewish Voice for Peace, Independent Jewish Voices, and many other Jews, okay, marginal, they're not, they don't constitute the majority, but they are growing, who equate what the Israelis are doing to the Palestinians to what happened to them in the past. And when they say, never again, you know, was meant for the Jews, but it's all, it, cannot be, it cannot be done against the Palestinians. This is unfair and this is not right. And what you know, we're doing to the Palestinians, what we promise should not ever be done to us and so on. When you see these people equating the issues that they had, when they, when they equate the, the injustices that they faced to Palestine, then you know there is a growing understanding of the Palestinian issue. And the biggest things that happened in the past year, which, which, which really will, will make a difference in, in, the coming, you know, in the near future, was a report that came out of one of the most respected and ethical uh, human rights organizations in Israel called B'Tselem. B'Tselem issued a report in, I think, December last year that said something like, from the river to the sea, which is the whole area of mandated Palestine or historical Palestine, it said, from the river to the sea, one apartheid regime. And that report came out, and for the first time ever, B'Tselem says, we did not want to get into this, but now it is very clear that it is, you know, whether you're in Israel in, you know, the 1948 area or the 1967 area that, you know, the occupied West Bank or the East Jerusalem or Gaza, you are all under one regime, which is the Israeli regime. Israel, Israel controls the airspace, the borders, the military, the movement of goods, the movement of people all over this area. So it's one apartheid regime. And, you know, apartheid is a, is a criminal term. It is a crime against humanity in international law, in the Rome statutes and in the United Nations. And then three months after that, you saw one of the most respected human rights organizations in the world, which is Human Rights Watch, that came out with another report that supported the report by B'Tselem that, you know, that was called something like a threshold crossed. Again, Israel, one apartheid regime. It is a, this is apartheid and persecution. This report was 10 times longer than the B'Tselem report. It was over 200 pages, and it clearly, clearly supported the idea that Israel is an apartheid regime. Israel, not only an apartheid regime, but was founded to be a racist regime against the Palestinians. It was an that Zionist ideology. It was an ideology that wanted to give dominance to one group over another, which is part of the uh, definition of apartheid or racism. So a couple, maybe three four week, or four weeks ago, the UK Labour Party in their annual conference came up again with a declaration that said Israel is an apartheid regime. So when you find all of these major organizations for the first time ever in, in almost 12 months come out and say Israel is an apartheid regime, Israel is persecuting the Palestinians, Israel is an ethno-racist system that gives dominance and gives power to one group of people based on ethnicity against the others. And all of these actions and regulations and laws and atrocities that are being committed to promote this idea is what is making it an apartheid regime. So the people are starting to see that. And I think, you know, when you look at Europe, the United States and Canada and all of the countries that are actually helping Israel sustain itself, these are the countries that are supporting Israel financially, politically, you know, these countries, the citizens of these countries are fighting for, you know, the save the dolphins and save the I don't know what. And, you know, 
looking at all of these humanitarian cases and issues. And then they, they go to Israel and they say, oh, you know, the Palestinians are the terrorists or the Palestinians are causing trouble and so on. This is some kind of contradiction that is going, is not going to last. I mean, you know, when, when you are looking at all of the humanitarian issues in the world on one side and then have a double standard when it comes to Palestine, this cannot be sustained for long. So I think the whole world is going to understand what has been done to the Palestinians and it's going, it's, it's going to uh, spread to the young generations now, you know, with the, with the social media and a few companies that used to control the dissemination of information around the world are not controlling the information anymore. There are bloggers and there are, you know, social media posts and stuff that, that come out from different areas, from different people, from different ages, and, and people are starting to see. And we saw that in the last attack on Gaza. We actually saw mainstream media anchor people, journalists, you know, mentioning things they never did before about Israel's breach of international law, the use of white phosphorus, the killing of children, the targeting of schools, the targeting of media stations, and so on. So these are things that I think I think are going to start pressuring Israel, pressuring Israelis, pressuring Americans and Europeans who support Israel into looking at this and giving an anal- analytical look and, and, and changing their minds about how they used to treat the Palestinians and how they used to support Israel unconditionally at the expense of human rights and at the expense of what is just. In support of Palestinians' sovereignty and resilience, the APN has the Million Tree Campaign, which focuses on restoring and planting native trees in the areas threatened by the expansion of settlements. And there's a heart-wrenching story of how the volunteer work of planting trees was repeatedly undone by the settlers. Can you share more about this and also how this tree planting project in response to the trees being dug up for sale elsewhere might be a representation of something more than the trees themselves as perhaps a shared struggle between the peoples with relations to those lands as well as their flora and fauna. I think around 2000, 2003, at the beginning of the idea of APN, the first couple of years we started working, we had been contacted by a German cyclist who had went cycling from Germany all the way to Palestine. And he, you know, he didn't have any political ideas. He was going, just going to go through. And he said he had got lost on, in one of the villages and the, and the villager, you know, one of the houses said, well, it's getting late. If you want, you can stay with us until the next morning. He said, I stayed at night at that place. And the next morning I got up and, you know, got on my bicycle to keep on with my journey. And I, I saw all of this havoc going on in that village. It's the village of Jeyus. That's the name of the village. And he had his camera with him because he wanted to take photos of his trip. So he said, I saw the most disgusting view I had ever seen. He said, all of these people with machine guns were coming, protected by the army, with bulldozers and with these big, big tractors, cutting down trees. And he said, all the villagers were running, men, women, and children were just running towards, the, towards that scene. And they were prohibited from arriving to, the, to that piece of land by the army with machine guns, and there was tear gas and so on. And he said, I went there and I said, what are you doing? What are you doing? Nobody was listening to him. And he saw all of these trees being uprooted. And he said, when I saw the tree get uprooted and, you know, and the villagers, you know, falling to the ground, crying and so on, he said, I couldn't stand. I fell to my knees and I started crying. He said, I had never seen something as horrendous as this. And he said, they were taking the trees and he started taking photos and, and they put them on beds, on, tr- on truck beds. 
he of course called the he called the German embassy and and they came and but nothing happened and he said I we followed up what was going on and they said we sell them in Tel Aviv for a good price if we can, if we can get them from the roots so they're not only uprooting trees they're making money out of it sometimes and um, he gave us the idea that you know this uprooting of trees is not being done only for just to harm the Palestinians but to actually to actually make money out of it and this is you know this is a kind of mentality that just takes you to imagine how far these people can go and from then on we started contacting the villages the local farming co-ops the agricultural organizations and asking them you know whoever gets these kinds of visits where they cut their trees and they damage their lands we started telling them we'll try to help you out by funding you buying seedlings and helping you get fences and refix your land and stuff like that this kind of systematic way of cutting trees the israelis understand that this is not only disconnecting the people from their ancestral land you know many of these trees are thousands of years old the oldest olive tree in the world is in palestine it is understood to be 5000 years and many of these trees are from b- before the roman times even so when you cut these trees down you're not only disconnecting the palestinians from their past from what their ancestors had planted for them but you are actually cutting their income so the palestinians will lose their income will lose their connection to the land the same way it was before and the cutting of the trees with these big big bulldozers and some of these bulldozers were manufactured by caterpillar especially for the israeli army to demolish houses very easily to demolish fences between lands and so on so what they do is they they even you know raise the fences and the partitions between the land so that the farmers can't can't tell where my land starts and where your land ends and so on so it's it causes problems between farmers trying to understand whose land is where it damages the soil it starts them from zero and so on so this is a systematic way and you know the APN started with with a dream of planting a million trees this is what we called it the million tree campaign we were so lucky that we had so much support from people all around the world that we were able to help Palestinians plant a million trees by the year 2008 and we were able to do the second million in 2014 and now we're halfway or a little bit more than with the third million so many in many of these cases we would plant an area with the volunteers and then the settlers would come and uproot them and then we would go again a week later and we would plant the trees and they would go again and uproot them and in some of these cases they would just get fed up and they just leave them and we would keep these trees and other cases we would just lose and you know be unable to go and plant them again so it is just back and forth the israeli army deploys drones and they see where palestinians are planting trees and the palestinian volunteers that we have see them and take pictures of them and take videos of them so the drones come and take pictures where people are planting the next morning early in the morning these trees are all gone by the settlers with the protection of the army but at the end of the day there's nothing else for us to do the only thing we can do is help the palestinians stay on their land build resilience for the palestinians because for the palestinians you know there's no other option you know they can't yeah. they can't go anywhere and if the palestinians have any humanity or any dignity they would resist because you know the people that don't resist oppression and don't resist the crimes that are committed against them are not human beings yeah this really speaks to the resilience of the Palestinian people it's just so heartbreaking to like picture 
these things happening. And we have often talked about indigeneity involving a deep relation to place. And so, you know, yes, all peoples are or have historically been indigenous to somewhere. But no matter the ancestry of a people, if they are driving a mass destruction of the land through destructive forms of deforestation, desertification, burning or uprooting of olive groves for whatever purpose, even if to subdue and achieve dominance over another group of people with shared relations to the place, that to me is still indicative of a colonial relationship to the land, which sort of represents a severance of ties to place and community that need to be healed for our collective healing. So I don't know, I just wonder if you might have anything else to add when we try to look at this all through the lens of relationships with the land and their diverse ecologies. What we see happening in in the United States and Canada and so many areas where the indigenous people are trying to establish themselves on these lands, and it it is something reminiscent of what is going on in Palestine. We see the, the pipelines that have to go through the indigenous lands, the pipelines that have to contaminate rivers in the United States and Canada, the digging for oil, the fracking. And the only ones who are standing against this, you see, are the indigenous people who have a true connection to that land, regardless of all the other atrocities that they have to be subjected to. They have a true connection to the land. They are the ones who are standing in protests, and they are the ones who are standing to protect the rivers and to protect the lands, what is under the lands. And we see that, and it just reminds us of how we have been working in Palestine to try to fix or mitigate what has been done against us. So there is a connection between, I, th- I think, indigenous everywhere, indigenous people everywhere have, have, have gone through the same, the same injustice and the same suffering under colonial, settler colonial powers. The difference is, you know, maybe in the past, there wasn't the news and the media and the, and the travel, they, you know, the, so the European settlers could do whatever they pleased. They could, you know, mass murder people and uh, just remove them from complete areas. Today, it is not that simple. Israel has, you know, Israel needs the acceptance of the world community. Israel needs to be seen in the West as uh, somebody not that criminal and not that atrocious. So they need to do things in a, in a different way. So they try to do things, they legalize their crimes in a way that they can display to the West that they are not the settler colonial copy of, you know, the ones before. They are not the criminals that we see them as. So one of, one of the examples of this is when Palestine was under Ottoman rule, the Ottomans had a rule saying that if anybody left the land uncultivated for three consecutive years, then that land goes back to the state so somebody else could cultivate it. And the Ottomans did not see themselves as the owners of the land, but they saw themselves as the assigners or the custodians of the land for the people. So they never went and took the lands for themselves but they gave it to somebody else who were cultivated. And this was meant to limit the uh, feudal power of the feudal lords in different areas. So they didn't want feudalism to take over where, where a lord would have a big, big chunk of land and so many peasants working for him or there. So they said, whoever doesn't cultivate a land for three years just loses, loses title to it and somebody else can come in. And then they said if somebody cultivates a land for this was uh, the Ottoman land code, uh, number Article 68. So they said whoever cultivates the land for 10 consecutive years can have a title to it that cannot be revoked. 
So this is just to help these farmers who cultivate their lands to keep them for their, for their heirs, for the, for the future generations. And then when the Ottoman Empire was lost and the British took over Palestine and then they left, you know, the West Bank came under Jordanian rule, Jordanians revoked Article 68 where that said, if anybody doesn't choose a land for three years, loses it, they revoked that and they said, whoever has a deed to the land can keep it. And then the Israelis took over. When the Israelis took over, they legalized their confiscation of the land by saying that we will go back to the Ottoman land code. So if anybody doesn't cultivate a piece of land for three years, it goes back to us. But they are not the state. They are the occupiers. They, you know, But they put themselves in that shoe and they started going confiscating lands. And you know, when they are asked, how, why are you doing this by different countries and different diplomats that see what's going on, they say, well, we're going back to the Ottoman land code that says you know, these people have not used their land for three years. But when you look at it, Palestinians are not able to get to their lands because of so many reasons, because of the settlements, because of the dangers, because of the buffer military zones, because of the checkpoints, because of the separation wall. The Palestinians are not able, and because of their weakness, you know, they, the Palestinians have a very, very weak economy due to, the, due to the occupation that they can't really cultivate all of their lands. So they legalized the crime in a way that when asked, they can say, well, we're going back to these regulations and laws. So this is one of the ways where the Palestinians see the theft and they understand the crime, but it's being displayed in a different way for the world to see. Yeah, well, there's still so much more that most people have yet to learn about the truth about what has been going on. And so we really appreciate this conversation and everything you've shared. And finally, you share that your work with APN has been not just giving the Palestinian people something to survive, but giving them the means to survive. So can you expand more on this? And for our listeners who feel moved to action to support the survival and thriving of the Palestinian peoples, what do you recommend they do or learn more about from where they are? What we would like to see is that people around the world respond to the call of the Palestinians for support. So the Palestinians need support, not necessarily monetary support, the Palestinians need the world to pressure Israel because Israel is using so many Palestinian lands, especially in the West Bank and the Jordan Valley, which is part of the West Bank, to export their tomatoes and their dates and um, different fruits to the rest of the world. So if you go to many of the supermarkets in the West, you will see dates, Israeli dates, that were grown in the Jordan Valley, which is part of the West Bank. And this is all you know, stolen lands, stolen Palestinian lands. So if the people... You know, just normal people can can do what they have to do is not buy these fruits and these products that were made on stolen lands. They will help the Palestinians. If people can understand more, can learn about the, the Palestinian problem, can disseminate the information, can share it with other people. If the more Israel is pressured, the more Israel is embarrassed, the more Israel is exposed, the more it would be willing to sit with the Palestinians, maybe to change its ways, to give up its ethno-racist ideology. Just, you know, something similar to what happened with the apartheid regime in South Africa. They got to a point where the whole world saw them as a pariah state, where the whole world saw them as, you know, ethno-racist people who were not going to be sitting in the international community with all of this crime on their hands. So, and they decided at the end of the day, you know, they can't go do the, doing this any longer. They can't keep all of these populations under their control as modern-day slaves, and the Palestinians are the same way. So the more they're exposed, the more they will be pressured, 
to change their ways and the more they would be pressured to allow the Palestinians their self-determination. Don't wait any longer Cause the night is drawing in And the sun's getting stronger While the ice is wearing thin Come out of the shadows So your voice can be received Don't stand on the sidelines Come fight for the air that you breathe Cause we all have the power to change Yeah, we all have the power to change What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really impactful for you? There are so many books that are really good. If you want to learn about the, the, the Palestinian problem from beginning to end, there's a very, very good book by Professor Noura Irakat. It's called Justice for Some. There's a very good book about the, the BDS campaign, which is the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions campaign by one of the co-founders of the uh, Boycott Movement, the Palestinian Boycott Movement. It's called BDS. This is a very good book for people who want to learn something about Palestine and about what they can do. These are very, two very good books. What the publications that I follow, of course, in the English language, I try to follow the alternative news sources like Democracy Now!, the podcasts of different, you know, the, the Moderate Rebels, uh, Electronic Intifada. These alternative media sources will give you a different look from the one that you will see on the mainstream media. What are some mottos, mantras, or practices you engage with to stay grounded? Again, I would like to, back, to go back to Howard Zinn because I'm a big fan of Howard Zinn. I remember one of the sentences. I don't know the exact wording, but it said something like, history is made by the countless actions of nameless people. And I don't think that, you, you know, I don't believe in the individual uh, celebrity or the individual commander or the individual leader. I believe in collective movements and collective work. So it doesn't matter. You don't have to be you don't have to be the leader of something big to make change. Whatever you do in your own community locally will be a very big move if it's done collectively with others. And these are the people, again, the nameless people, the, the, the countless actions of nameless people who will change the world. And I like something that goes along the same lines. I think that was uh, coined by uh, Greenpeace that said, think globally, act locally. And this, this is a great example. I mean, I follow that everywhere. I mean, I don't say that, well, what, what is it going to do if, if only me, you know, if only I am going to do this, it's not going to make any changes. But if I, if I think that I'm going to make a change, then I know millions of other people are going to think the same way. Mm. And what has moved you personally the most that inspires you to keep going? I think the injustices we see every day. I mean, every day we are seeing things happening to the Palestinians. And then you see, you look at the bigger, bigger issue and you see that big, big giant enemy to the future of all of us, which is climate change. And then it all fits together. You know, these people are uprooting trees. These people are throwing sewage on Palestinian villages and so on. These, these people are, are actually causing damage to the environment and not only damage to the environment, but the damage to a whole nation. So it all, it all fits together. If you are against I mean, if you want to work against climate change, you have to fight 
all of these people who are damaging the climate and um, and you see the injustices around you and you know you feel that you're obliged well green dreamer we are coming to a close but to learn more and stay updated on rami's work you can head to www.apnature.org/en for the english version of the website rami thank you so much for joining us today it's been an honor to have you here what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers what i say is just we have to keep going we have to keep the, you know keep believing in ourselves that we can affect change we can we can never give up hope because the minute we give up hope that's it there is no chance that we will go anywhere this episode of green dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you and to be honest we cannot keep the show going without more direct support so if you value independent media and counterculture conversations like this You can help to sustain and co-create the future of this show with a donation of any amount at greendreamer.com/support. Without a media network behind us, we do also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is "Power to Change" by Luna Beck. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri, and I'm your host Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode.